now and then we'll get into our study okay father we do lift up those who uh, are going through difficult times right now i just pray for yolanda and richard and their family as yolanda's father passed away and and lord um, i just thank you for the comfort that you brought to them today as the memorial service was held and, and lord there was the support of friends and family but lord um, understanding what it what it feels like to lose a parent I just pray that you'd bring that comfort and straight uh, strength to to them also to bill and and to gail um, just bless them as they drive back um, to uh, be with their family and just comfort bill as he's lost his father now and and lord just uh, minister to them and bless them father i do pray you be with darlene as she is going to be going under treatment and uh Lord, that we pray that you minister her physically. We miss seeing her. And, Lord, um, we just pray that you would um, just do a marvelous work, a miraculous work in her. Be with the doctors and nurses as they start this treatment. Give them wisdom. We commit her to you, Lord. And, Father, we pray for Carrie's father. Um, doctors say the news isn't good, and we lift him up to you. And, Lord, we know that there isn't anything too difficult that you can't touch and heal and and um, Lord, we just commit that to you. We pray. Uh, you said, "Ask, please ask," and we can cast our cares upon you. And so, Lord, we just lift him up to you. And Lord, we just pray that you would just touch him and be with Carrie, who's gone through loss herself, losing her husband um, just in the last year. And and Lord, that you bring uh, just strength to her. And and Lord, your presence would be perceived. Show yourself strong on their behalf, Lord, and minister. And, Lord, I just pray for John and Karen that you'd minister to John and bring healing to him. And, Lord, we love them so much. Even though we don't see them, um, you know, here, we are with them in the Spirit. And, Lord, we ask, we lift them up uh, to you as they're in Oklahoma and John's uh, going through tests and treatments. And, Father, touch him. Bring healing, Lord, is what we ask. And, Lord, we know that there are others that are sick and not doing well or hurting because of loss. And, Lord, we just lift them up to you. And I pray that tonight that we would just gain from your word. And even though there are portions of Scripture that aren't always easy to go through, but we know that the lesson there and the application that we can make is how much we need you, just as we prayed and, and sang tonight. Lord, how we need you. And, Lord, so teach us your ways. And, Father, uh, press upon our hearts um, your goodness and faithfulness and how you desire for us to experience that abundant life as we just walk with you and as, Lord, we just um, look to you in everything. So, Lord, teach us tonight. Um, bless the youth as they're going upstairs and bless the children as they're being taught as well. And I pray everyone in this building uh, that the praises of God and the word of God would be proclaimed to them. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapters 1 through 16 of the book of Judges, as we have seen, was talking about and showing us those judges that God raised up out of his mercy and grace to deliver the children of Israel out of the bondage that they would find themselves in. So here's this period in their history of about 400 years, and they've been walking in disobedience and turning away from the Lord and, and, and forsaking him and going after those Canaanite gods to worship them and to, to take in of their idols. And so the Lord had warned them that if you do that, that you will find yourself in bondage. Now keep in mind, remember that when the children of Israel, as we saw clear back in the book of Exodus, and as we've been traveling through the Old Testament, 
we saw that the Lord brought the children of Israel when they left Egypt to the mountain of God. And what the Lord declared to them was that I'm going to make a covenant to, to you. Matter of fact, he said to the children of Israel, get ready, I'm going to show myself to you there in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And there was thunders on the thunderings and lightnings on the mountain. There was, um, you know, smoke and the mountain seemed like on fire. There was the earth that shook and the voice of God that was heard. And they were overwhelmed. They were at awe. And the Lord made a covenant with them at that time. And so the Lord gave them the law. He made a covenant with them, giving them not only the law of God, the, also Moses would receive at that time the ceremonial laws, the religious laws, the civil laws of the nation, because they were then supposed to go from there into the promised land that God had given them, and there they would be established as a nation. And God's desire was that he was to rule over them. That's why he called them Israel. Israel means governed by God. But, of course, we saw that they sinned and they were full of disobedience and continued in that. So they spent a total of 40 years in the wilderness till that generation that came out of Egypt died off. And it was then Joshua that brought them into the promised land. And as they would go into the promised land, again, that covenant was confirmed there in the promised land on the mountain there as there was the blessings and the cursings. And in that we saw that the Lord said that if you follow after me and, and keep my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to deliver you from your enemies. You're going to have abundance of crops. You're going to see that I am good to you. Your families are going to be blessed. Good things are going to happen. But if you forsake me, then there's going to be the curses. And that is that you're going to find yourself in drought. You're going to find yourself in bondage to the enemy. There are all kinds of negative consequences that are going to happen because of that. And so a generation after Joshua that passes off the scene, we see this period of 400 years where the children of Israel have forsaken the Lord. And so God's word is true. And his his covenant that he made with them is true, and so they forsook the Lord, and they found themselves in bondage to their enemies. And so the book of Judges tells about how they would put away those idols, they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord out of his mercy and grace would then lift up a judge to deliver them from the bondage that they found themselves in. So the different judges that we looked at, as we looked at Ehud, we looked at uh, Deborah, we looked at the life and ministry of, of Gideon, and then Jephthah, and some of the others, and Samson. And so it was very, very um, fascinating to look at their lives and how they would be used of the Lord to free the children of Israel from their bondage. Chapters 17 through 21, these five chapters, as I mentioned to you last week, are kind of an addendum, if you would, to the book of Judges, really showing us the spiritual condition of the land. There's two distinct stories that are here in these chapters. In chapters 17 and 18, it talks about and gives us a story of a Levite that's from Bethlehem that goes to Ephraim. In chapters 19 through 21, it speaks of a Levite from Ephraim that goes to Bethlehem. But two distinct stories here that are going to show us how far that uh, the nation had departed from the Lord. It's going to show us really the spiritual condition of the nation. So chapter 17, we began to look at a man whose name was Micah. Micah was a man who stole uh, his mother's money. She had a fortune uh, of 1100 um, 
hundred shekels of silver. That's a life's fortune. And he stole the money, and she put a curse on the person who stole it. She didn't know it was her son. But her son, Micah, heard that curse. And so he begins to sweat some bullets there. He becomes concerned, and he fesses up. He says, Mom, the money that, that was stolen from you, the 1,100 shekels of silver, uh, and, and, and the curse that you put on the person who took it, well, you know what? I'm the one who took it. So perhaps he was trying to be an honest thief. I don't know. But he confesses up. And then his mother says, well, blessed are you. And I was going to give you the money anyway. But what they ended up taking was taking some of that money and they gave it to a silversmith. And that silversmith made an idol. And also what was made was some household idols. And as we saw last week in chapter 17, when you read the household idols, it was like a series of idols that were made there along with this shrine and this main idol that they would worship and he made it ephod now you recall in the book of exodus that when it talked about the clothing of the high priest he wore this ephod and that ephod was kind of a vest it showed that he was the high priest so here's micah he's trying to duplicate some things concerning uh you know the ways of the lord Um, he's trying to be religious he's trying to be spiritual but he's doing it all wrong and the reason was is because it's the theme of the book of judges is it it is mentioned here in chapter 17 in verse 6 it says in those days there was no king in israel but everyone did what was right in his own eyes and one of the things that this book screams at us as we go through it and particularly these chapters at the end of the book of Judges is this is what happens if we do what is right in our own eyes. We end up getting so far away from the Lord and the ways of the Lord because we're doing what we think is right rather than what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so here is Micah. He's trying to be religious. Uh, he's trying to, to, to you know, uh, be one that uh, perhaps is trying to be close to God, but he's doing it all wrong because he's doing what is right in his own eyes, not what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So Micah here, he, he consecrates his son as being a priest. Well, all of a sudden, this Levite comes from Bethlehem up to Ephraim. And this Levite is one that is from that tribe that would be the priestly tribe, that is, as we've discussed, that it was Aaron, the direct descendants of Aaron, that were to be the priest. And the priests, their responsibilities were given to them there in the book of Leviticus. So as we went through the Old Testament, here is God saying, here are my ways. This is the way that you are to worship and the sacrifices, how they are to be done. Um, you are to worship not just anywhere, but you are to worship there at the tabernacle. And so the priestly ministry was established there in the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. We saw that the Levites were raised up, those families that were not the direct descendants of Aaron, but the other families came along and they assisted the priests in their ministry. They did not do the work of the priests, but they had their own ministry that they did. 
So all of a sudden, here is this Levite that comes from Bethlehem. And again, we talked about that where the people were to worship, where the tabernacle was, and that was at Shiloh. And here is Micah saying, well, I'm going to set up my own place of worship. I'm going to set up my own priesthood. And this man who was in Bethlehem, a Levite, and I think it shows us the spiritual condition of the land because, you see, you recall that when the children of Israel came into the promised land, you recall that it was the Lord that said, you got 48 cities that you are to dwell in. That's where the Levites were to live. They didn't get a large portion of land like the other tribes did to where they could have you know, vineyards and grain fields and have cattle and to you know, be able to have orchards and to feed themselves. But it was the Levites that the Lord said, I am your inheritance. I want you to dwell in these 48 cities so anybody is within a day's walk to come and receive some spiritual guidance and advice from one who is from that priestly tribe. And so Bethlehem, as we discussed last week, was not one of those cities of the Levites. And so it shows us that probably the people stopped supporting the Levites. And as you recall, that it was the people, when they came into the promised land, they were to give the first fruits to the priests and to the Levites. They were to give the offerings there at the tabernacle, later on at the temple. They were to support the Levites. They were to support the priests so they can devote themselves to doing the work of the ministry. Well, the nation here at this time in the days of the judges, they weren't doing that any longer. So here's this Levite, goes up to Micah's house, and he says, ah, here is a man, and we're going to see at the end of chapter uh, 18 that this Levite, his name is actually Jonathan. He is a descendant of Moses. And so here is Micah saying, oh, here is this Levite. At least I'm in the right tribe. I'm going to make him a priest. So he gives him a year's wages. He gives him some clothes. Probably gives him the ephod that he can wear. And he gives him a place to stay. And so here's this, this, you know, this place of worship that is set up. And Micah, as we saw at the end of chapter 17, verse 13, I'll read it to you, and then we'll move into chapter 18. He says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as a priest. He really thinks that God is going to bless him. But again, he's doing things wrong and contrary to the way that God wants him to do things. And that's why it's really important for you and I to understand the word of God as it declares to us how God is to be honored you know, as we worship him, as he is honored as we come and study his word, to live for him and after his ways. And for you and I to be wise for salvation and wise in the way that we live. And here is Micah. He thinks God's going to bless them. But it's a false religious system that he has set up. And it's false worship and the worship of these idols. And he has a priest that God has not called to be a priest. So chapter 18, we see now that the plot thickens. And so chapter 18, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the Danites, you recall that Samson, he was from the tribe of Dan. And when Joshua came in and divided up the land to the 12 tribes of Israel, there was the tribe of Dan that had that area that was west of Jerusalem, 
it was just west of where the tribe of Judah had their land. And they encompassed that area. It's very beautiful uh, when you go there today. It was west of Jerusalem. It's very fertile. It's rolling hills, lots of vineyards, lots of grain fields, lots of orchards. It's like Southern California. It really is. It's got the beach there, the Mediterranean Sea. Very, very nice piece of area of land that was given to the tribe of Dan. But as we saw as we opened up the book of Judges, you recall that they didn't completely drive out the inhabitants of the land, did they? They had great victory. They were ones that, that they would defeat the enemies, even though the enemy would come against them with a huge army. It was Joshua and the children of Israel stepping out on faith, believing God's promises that would defeat them. That, but there were still pockets of the enemy that was around. And so when the the 12 tribes would have their inheritance, their allotment of land. They were to finish driving out those Canaanite tribes, but they did not do that. There was compromise. And so we discussed that at the beginning of the book, and what ended up happening is that as they rebelled against the Lord, that those Canaanites and Moabites and Amorites and the Philistines would eventually rise up to hold the children of Israel in bondage. And so that's what we've seen taking place. The tribe of Dan was in that area where the Philistines were strong. And, of course, we discussed that as we saw that Samson was of the tribe of Dan. And his main enemy at that time that he judged was the Philistines. He was fighting the Philistines. And the Philistines from this time in their history in the book of Judges up until the time that David becomes king, they're the ones that are going to be a real problem and plague to the children of Israel, always fighting the children of Israel. So here is Dan. They have not only the Philistines that are along the coast that are in the Mediterranean Sea that come in against them, but they have the Amorites as well that would strengthen. And so they're always in battle. So it says here in verse 1 that for until that day their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. In other words, they did not step out in the way that God had told them to, to, to drive out the Philistines, to drive out the Amorites. But instead, they were rebelling against the Lord, and they were ones that found themselves weak and impoverished and in bondage. And if there is that lesson that we have seen very clearly going through this book, and that is that if you are not submitted to the Lord, and if you're one that is not yielding to Him and walking with Him, and if your heart isn't devoted to Him, you're just going to experience uh, the things that they did. Well, not in the exact same way, but you're going you're gonna to feel defeated. And, and you're going to, to be in bondage to something. And you're going to be one that is impoverished spiritually, just as they would find themselves being impoverished. And so here was Dan. They never really took hold of their land. And so here is the tribe of Dan seeking a place that they're going to move to. So verse 2, So the children of Dan sent five men and their family from the territory, men of valor from Zorah and Estacol, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. So these, these five guys from the tribe of Dan, they're going to go seek out a place for them to move. They're going to pack up. They're not going to take the inheritance that God has given to them. They're not going to take the land that they were to possess, and they're going to move. So these five spies go, and they begin to go north. And they pass through Ephraim, and all of a sudden, they find themselves at the house of Micah. 
And so, verse 3, while they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite. They turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? And he said to them, This is this thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So they said to him, Please inquire of God, that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. And so here is these five spies. They're heading up north. They end up at Micah's house. And they recognize the voice, or that is the accent, of this Levite. Now, apparently, as we've seen evidence of this, that those of the tribe of Ephraim had a special accent. You recall that it was Jephthah. Remember, he defeated the Ammonites. And it was the tribe of Ephraim that came to Jephthah and said, Why didn't you call us? Why didn't you invite us to come and do battle against the Amorites? And and Jephthah said, I did. You didn't respond. But the tribe of Ephraim was very, very much um, a problem with Jephthah in that they were upset. They said, we're going to burn down your house and burn your family up and threaten Jephthah. So Jephthah said, no, you're not going to do that. And so Jephthah ended up going to war against Ephraim. And so it was Jephthah that defeated the men of Ephraim. And you recall that some of those men had escaped. So here's Jephthah and his, his troops, and they're at the Jordan River. And when anybody came by to the checkpoint, they would ask them, say, Sabalath. And if they said it in a certain accent, they knew that they were from the tribe of Ephraim. You remember that story in, I believe, chapter 12 of Judges? And so here is uh, the Ephraimites. They had a special accent. And, and that would, of course, make sense because in Jesus' day, that the nation was divided into three sections. There was Galilee up north, and that's where Jesus spent most of his earthly ministry. You remember? So there's Galilee up north. That was where the fishermen and the farmers and guys who had orchards, the people who lived in rural areas up there in the area of Galilee. And then the middle section was called Samaria. And Samaria was made up of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, as you read in the Gospels, they were those who were descendants of, of, of that, that mixture of the Assyrians and the Jews. In 720 B.C., when the ten northern tribes were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians, not everybody was taken off into captivity, but some were left. But the Assyrians came down, intermarried with the Jews, and so they, their offsprings, were known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans in Jesus' day, there was a lot of prejudice against them by the Jews. They weren't allowed to come down into Jerusalem to worship, so the Samaritans had their own place that they worshiped, their own temple, and their, kind of their own religious system that was set up. And that's why in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman, that she was surprised that he would even talk to her. And that's why she asked him, why is it that you being a Jew is talking to me a Samaritan? So there was a lot of, of prejudice, unfortunately, towards the Samaritans, but that made up the middle section of the nation. And in the southern part of the nation was Judah, or Judea. And that's where Jerusalem was, that's where the temple was, that's where all the religious leaders, or that is most of them, would live there. And the people of Judea really looked down on the people in Galilee. And so the people of Galilee apparently had an accent as well. How do I know that? 
you recall that when Jesus was arrested there in the garden, you remember that it was Peter that night that had been boasting, I'll never forsake you, Lord. I'll stay with you. Uh, I'll even die for you. And you recall that when Jesus was arrested a few hours after Peter said that, there in the garden, that all the disciples ran away. They took Jesus bound, took him to Caiaphas' house, that is the high priest, put him on trial before the religious council, the Sanhedrin council. And as he's there on trial, Peter sneaks into the courtyard. You remember the story? And there he's at the fire and he's warming himself up. And Jesus had predicted that Peter... I know that you desire to be brave, but the fact is you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter denies the Lord once. Peter denies the Lord twice there. And all of a sudden, a girl comes up to him and says, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. And it was Peter that began to curse and swear, and I don't know the man. And she said something very interesting. She said, you're a Galilean because your speech betrays you. You have an accent. And here we see that these guys recognize the accent of this Levi. You're not from around here, are you? You're from down where our parts is. Why are you telling us all this, Pastor Jeff? Because I'll tell you the truth on this. Your speech will betray you. And what it is that is coming out of your mouth is going to show the abundance of what's in your heart. And that's what Jesus said. And if you're one that you're speaking the graces of God and the praises of God and the truth of God, that's what I hope that you're doing, that your speech is for edification, what is necessary for edification, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. Not tearing others down, not lying, not full of blasphemies or, or useless babbling or filthy language or any of those things. Your speech will show where your heart is really at. And if you're one that you're at work and you're yucking it up and the dirty jokes and, you know, the, the filthy language or whatever it might be, it's indicative of really where your heart is at. My prayer for all of us is that our speech would be seasoned with salt, with the praises of God, with the Word of God, because it's indicative of the abundance of God, His love that fills our hearts. So here is this Levite. You're not from around these parts. We recognize, you know, your accent. And what are you doing here? Well, Micah, he hired me. And so, interesting, isn't it, that they, these spies said, well, tell us, since you're a priest up here and you got this religious place, is God going to bless us or not? And here is Micah, and he says, oh, yeah, God's going to bless you. God wasn't going to bless them. God had already told them that here's your inheritance and this is where I want you. And what we're going to see is they're going to go up to that area, they're going to find a place, and they're going to do something awfully horrible to gain that place. But here is Micah saying, oh, God's going to bless you, not desiring to really minister to them in a way of giving them God's word or correction. There's a lot of that that goes on today. There's a lot of so-called religious leaders that will say, oh, God's going to bless your lifestyle. Oh, God is with you. He, he doesn't care about your immorality, your carnality. Because, again, they are doing what is right in their own eyes. A lot of religious talk. There's a lot of those today and that are out there that like to give feel-good messages. and We're just going to be positive. There are pastors today that will not even mention the word sin over the pulpit. They refuse to. 
they don't want to to bum anybody out you know want our services to be uplifting and so they'll use the words mistakes and things like that but you know what we need to understand that the gospel message is is that we're sinners that need a savior in jesus christ so a lot of that's going on matter of fact it's interesting that the one who has the largest church in america who gives feel good and positive messages all the time it is interesting to me, very popular author as well. Matter of fact, I think I heard the last book that he wrote, he got a $13 million advance on it. And in these books that he talks about that are feel good and, you know, be successful, he doesn't mention Jesus once. He was asked about it on 60 Minutes, and he said, well, you know, I just want to help people. I don't really expand on, expound on the Word of God. I just want to help people. How can you help people truly if you don't give them Jesus? You see, Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And the life that truly is going to be blessed is the one that looks to him, is submitted to him, learns of him, right? And that's what we need to give to others. And sometimes our message out of love will be a message of correction and rebuke. And you know what? There's a loving Savior a loving Father that says stay away from sin because it's going to harm you and hurt you and do you win. Micah, he's not going to give that message here. And so they hired me and, you know, God will prosper you wherever you go. And, and so go in peace in verse 7. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. And there were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything, for they were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. So here they are up in Laish. Now Laish is way up in the north part of the country. It's at the base of Mount Hermon. And it is later going to be changed to when the tribe of Dan goes in there, and takes it over is going to be called Dan. And for those of you who are going to go with us to Israel next May, we are going to go to this actual place. We're going to go where they built the city of Dan. And it's going to be a place from this time up until the time they be carried off into captivity of idol worship. And we're going to see the mud gate that was built there that actually Abraham walked through. We're going to see the temple that was built there dedicated to the golden calf. So here's a place, Laish, very beautiful. It's very lush up there. As I mentioned, Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel. It's a high mountain that you see. In the wintertime, they get snow there. They even have a little ski area up there that the Israelites go up and go skiing during the winter months of January and February. But it's the headwaters of the Jordan River there at the base of the mountain. And the headwaters of the Jordan River has three forks, and then it joins together and flows south to the Sea of Galilee. And in the headwaters, what we're going to do is actually take a little hike, an easy hike, and we'll see that little stream, the, the, the headwaters of the Jordan River, very beautiful, lush. It's got trout in the stream, very exciting to look at. And so we, we see the trout, we see the stream, it's mountainous, it's forest, it's got oak trees and fig trees and pines that are up there, very lush and green. So they're up there in this area, and there are the Sidonians. Now, who are the Sidonians? Well, you've heard of Tyre and Sidon there in Lebanon. So they're up in that area of Lebanon. They don't have an army up there. And so these are descendants of the Sidonians that, that came from up there in Lebanon, 
and they came that distance down, and they're settling there. There's no one ruling over them. They have no ties to anyone. No one's going to protect them. And so verse 8, the spies would then come back to their brethren in Zorah and Estaol, and their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and indeed it is a very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. And when you go, you will come to a secure people and a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Hey, let's go back. God has given us this land. Now, did God give them this land? No, God had not given them this land. But this is easy. This is easy pickings, man. There's a group of people there. They have no ties to anybody. And we can go up there and we can just wipe them out. And there's nothing that we lack. It's green and it's lush and it's easy. And we'll just be there, you know, sitting with our feet in the streams. Just living it up. It's going to be easy street. Let's go on up and take it. God has given us the land. Folks, we need to be careful in our lives. That sometimes we think that the easy way out is what God has for us. And we need to make sure that we are committed to, Lord, the place that you have for me to be, to possess. And sometimes, oftentimes, that what God has for you to possess, it's not always going to be easy, is it? There's going to be battles the enemy comes against you. That's why the enemy does come against you, because he knows that God has something for you, wants to do work through you. So he's going to come against you, the enemy is. And, and there's challenges and there's difficulties. And sometimes we think, forget this, I'm going to go where it's more comfortable, where it's easy. And we need to make sure that we are searching the Lord, we are seeking the Lord. Lord, is this where you want me to be? Because oftentimes we can just take off and go where we think that we're going to be more comfortable. The Lord may move you around. And the Lord may change things in your life. But make sure that you are taking on that which God has called you to. And you are where God wants you to be. And it isn't always necessarily easy street. He has called us to be committed. And that oftentimes means that we won't always be comfortable. But here they're thinking, man, this is easy. We're going to go. Let's go up and take it. So verse 11, the 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there to Zorah and Estaol and armed with weapons of war. And, they, and then they went up and encamped in Kerjath-Jerim in, in Judah. And therefore they called the place Mahana-Dan to this day. Therefore it's west of Kerjath-Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. You know, Micah... He must have had big, you know, neon sign or something, you know. The house of idols, come here. It's a busy place, isn't it? All these people are coming. The Levite comes, and all of a sudden the spies come, and all of a sudden the 600 men come. So somehow he's right in the middle where there's a lot of traveling that's going on and stuff, and so that's where they end up back up at Micah's house. So verse 14, the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image. Now therefore consider what you should do. And so the 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were of the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. 
And the five men who had gone to the spy out the land went up entering there and took the carved image, the ephod of the household idols, and the molding image. And the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molding image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. It is better for you to be a priest to the household of one man, or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family of Israel. So here they come to Micah's house, and those five spies that were there previously said to the 600, You know what's in that house? There's a lot of religious stuff. It's probably going to do us good. So we get the priest out here, keep him busy. We're going to go in, we're going to take the ephod, the idols, and all of this. And so Micah's priest there, this Levite, Jonathan, he realizes what's going on. And he says, what are you guys doing? Why are you taking all the, this, you know, idols and things? And they told him, be quiet. You know, shut your mouth. And we're going to make you a good offer here. You come with us because we can use you too. We can use these idols. We'll set up a, our own church up there and you can come and pastor the church up there so come with us it's better than just being micah's priest you can come be a priest a whole tribe now so verse 20 the priest's heart was glad and he took the ephod household idols and the carved image and took his place among the people hey i got a promotion I'm successful now is what he's saying isn't he he's thinking i get to a lot of people that are going to listen to me and I get to lead them in this false worship. I get to lead them in, in this religious stuff that we have up here. And his heart was glad. And he thought he had really arrived. He thought that, man, I am successful now. You know, it's kind of funny in the day and age in which we live how we measure success in a church. And we measure success by the world standard so oftentimes, don't we? Do you realize that there are things that we could do here at Calvary Chapel Greeley to really try to draw in the crowds? We, we really could. But God hasn't called me to do that. God has called me to simply teach you the Word of God in the environment of love. And that's a commitment that I've made to you here at Calvary Chapel Greeley. That each and every time that you come through the doors that we're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to go through God's Word. And that I'm going to teach you and show you, as long as God has me here, the whole counsel of God's Word. And again, because I believe that's the best way for you to grow in the things of God. The best way for you to mature in the Lord, to be comforted and instructed. And it may not appeal to everyone. It, it may not appeal, certainly, to people's flesh. But that's what God has called me to. And if we are doing the things that honor and please the Lord, then we are successful in that in his eyes, that he is pleased. There are things that we can do that draw in the people with the feel-good messages or with the programs or the entertainment or the hoopla and all of this. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're being successful. When Jesus was writing to the church of Laodicea, they were a wealthy church. Man, they had it made. And Jesus said to them that in your own eyes you seem to be wealthy, you have plenty, you got it made. But he says you're poor, miserable, and there's some serious problems here. And Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. 
Behold, if you'll let me in. In other words, he was on the outside. And in the world's eyes, the church of Laodicea was the church that was successful. But in God's eyes, he's on the outside trying to get in. And he tells them that you guys need to repent. My prayer for us is that we would, as we look at, again, what does it mean to be standing firm as a godly church, a church that pleases God, being in a place of the study of the Word of God and prayer and loving one another. Those are the things that we are to be doing and serving one another. And if we are doing those things, then we're successful. Standing on the truth, praying for one another, loving one another, caring for one another. You know, encourage those who are hurting when you see them, who are going through loss or physical affliction or whatever it might be. Let's lift people up in prayer and let's serve one another because I know that's what pleases God. So here he gets this, this promotion and he's happy about it. So verse 21, they turned the party and put the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them and then were they a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. They turned around and said to Micah, What ails you and why have you gathered such a company? So Micah comes home. He, he realizes that, hey, my, my gods are gone. He says in verse 24, and he said, You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priests, and you've gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, What ails you? Isn't that interesting, verse 24? I mean, read this. Isn't this ridiculous? You've taken away my God. What kind of God is that that you can take away like that and kidnap? And my God, which I made, that's how weird and warped that their perspective of God is. And, of course, as you go into the Old Testament, in the books of the prophets, particularly when you go into the book of Isaiah in chapters 44 and 45, there is the Lord saying to the children of Israel, here you cut a piece of wood. With part of that wood, you throw into the fire to, to cook your food, and the other half you make a god out of it that has ears but can't hear and eyes that can't see and a mouth that can't speak. And he's talking about the foolishness of idol worship. These idols cannot do anything for you. And you see, here is Micah saying, you've taken away my gods which I made. What kind of God is that? And we look at it and we can chuckle and laugh and say, yeah, how ridiculous it is. But how we can if we are not careful and we have a society that people make their gods. They make their idols. Because an idol is anything that has priority over relationship with the true and the living God, anything that people turn to in their hour of need, what motivates them, what fulfills them and satisfies them, what they live for, that's an idol. And there are many idols. It can be riches. It can be self. It, It can be a number of things, possessions that we have. But the thing is, they can be taken away. In the latest economy, as it's collapsed, how many people have lost a lot of those riches? Their God was taken away. Their possessions that they've lost, taken away. Or we have pride and, you know, we're so focused on self, but yet we have a fall. We go through difficulties. 
The only thing that's going to last, the only true God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So may he be the priority. Because you know what? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's his promise to you. So why are you taking away my God? So the children of Dan said to him, You know, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. In other words, shut your mouth, or we're going to punch your lights out, is what they're saying to Micah. In verse 26, So the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took the things that Micah had made, and the priests who had belonged to him, and went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab, so they rebuilt the city and dwelt there. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the children of Dan set up for themselves a carved image. And Jonathan, this is that Levite, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image which he made. And all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh, the place of worship was to be in Shiloh where the tabernacle was. And here they'd set up another place of worship in Dan. And Dan would be a center of vital worship after the days of David and Solomon, when the nation split to the ten northern tribes, that it was Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, that set up the golden calf, where? In Dan. So Dan is known in the scriptures as plunging the children of Israel into idol worship. So here's this place, Dan, that they build full of idol worship. They go in and they kill the Sidonians and they take this place that they think that God has given to them. But they do it out of violence. They do it out of disobedience to the Lord because they're doing what is right in their own eyes. I pray that the days in which we're in where people are doing what is right in their own eyes, that you and I would say, Lord, we want to do what is right in your eyes what is right in your heart and be sensitive to his ways, submitted to his ways and to his leading. Father, we know that this is written for us that we may learn. Father, I do pray tonight as we hear this story, it reminds us of how we are to be submitted to you and to your ways. And Father, we come tonight, and I pray if, if any of us perhaps are hearing your voice, maybe going in a direction that, that we know that you don't want us to, but it's easier, it's more convenient, but it's not pleasing to you. Lord, that we would turn away and that we would turn to you, and Lord, trust in you even though it may seem challenging, but to be in that place where you want us to be. And Lord, strengthen us and help us to look to you and to trust in you for everything. Father, we want to do what is right in your eyes. and What is right according to your heart. And Father, I thank you that you had a heart for us. And we know that you love us. Because you sent your son, you demonstrated, proved your love for us that while 
We are yet sinners. Christ died for us. And Lord, as we come to the communion table tonight, as we open it up, Lord, that we would come with our hearts close to you. Lord, just rejoicing once again in our hearts the wonderful works that you have done. Jesus Christ coming and allowing his body to be broken for us for the forgiveness of sin. This new covenant that we've entered into, as Jesus said, the covenant of my blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And to come and take and to eat and drink and do this often. As we just right now just focus on you, our hearts set on you, to worship and to remember what Jesus Christ has done and bringing us salvation and a living hope.